Hey, uh, good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, you know, when you, when you teach through the scriptures the way that we do, uh, the, the, the thing that is for me is I don't have to usually figure out what I'm going to teach next week. I have to figure out how I'm going to teach it, but the message is already there for me. It's just the next section of scripture as we continue on. And whenever it comes to you know, Christmas or Easter or, or anytime I'm going to do a, a topical message or something along those lines, you know, I always get a little bit stumped and going, well, it's a big book. What should I teach on? You know, well, Christmas makes it a little bit easier because you got the Christmas story. But then it becomes, well, what perspective do you teach? Do you teach Mary's perspective? Do you teach Joseph's perspective? Do you just do an overview of the story? Do you focus in on one part? And you, you kind of try to figure all that stuff out. And this week I was, I was praying through it and I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to teach. And, and I really feel the Lord wanted me to, to teach the Christmas story from a pro- prophetic background. In other words, the prophecies, some of the prophecies of the Old Testament leading up to the scriptures, up to the, up to the birth of Christ. And I thought, well, that's not really a Christmas message. And I said, Lord, if, 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 you, if you want me to do that, could you just confirm that to me in some way? And Friday afternoon, uh, Joe Powers stopped by the church just to say hello. We were talking and, and uh, he asked me, he said, so what are you planning on teaching on, on Sunday? And I said, well, I think I'm going to do this prophecy, prophecy thing. And he said, hang on a second. And he reached into his coat pocket. He pulled out a, an email that he had written earlier in the day. And it talked about all some prophecies leading up to the birth of Christ about just a couple things that he had outlined, a couple things, and it was just enough for the Lord to show me, keep going, that's what I want you to share. So we're going to do Christmas a little bit different this morning. It's not going to be your typical message, although we will be reading the Christmas story towards the end of the message. But I want to kind of open it up this way. Well, first let me tell you where to turn. You're going to be in a number of places. We're going to be in Genesis 49. That's where we're going to start. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 9. Then we're going to go to Micah chapter 5. And then we'll finish up in Luke chapter 2. So Genesis 49 is, is where we're going to start. Now, if I was a gambling man, which I'm not, I would be willing to bet that almost everybody in this room knows the reason that we celebrate Christmas. We have all heard, we've all known, especially through our culture, that yes, the Christians, as Christians, we are celebrating the birth of our Savior. And we all probably know that he probably wasn't born on December 25th. He was probably born earlier in the year. But this is the day that we chose to redeem from pagan worship and chose to corporately celebrate the birth of our Savior. And during this time of year, I think it's wonderful that the birth of Christ is everywhere. It's all over the place. He's in our manger scenes. We have heralding angels on top of our trees. And his birth is declared in our Christmas music. As we sing our Christmas songs, as we play them in the malls and the stores, the birth of Christ is declared. But sometimes what happens as Christians, they just become words in our head that roll over. They're just, they're just playing over and over and over and over again. And I wanted to read the words to a song to you this morning. It's a song that we sang this morning. It's called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's one of my favorite Christmas songs. But I want you to pay particular attention to the biblical references, to the theological references in here. And I'm not going to sing them for you, and you should clap for that. I'm going to say them to you, because I think even singing them puts you back in that sing-songy kind of melody. But listen to the words of the song we just sang. And I'm actually going to add a few verses that were part of the original song. It goes like this. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With 
the angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ by highest, heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offering of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Come, desire of nations come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. That should sound familiar to you. Now display the saving power, ruined nature now restore. Now in mystic union join, thine to ours and ours to thine. And the last verse goes like this. Adam's likeness, Lord efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain. Thee, the life, the inner man, owe to all thyself in part, formed in each believing heart. Did you catch the theological implications there? These are the songs that play in our department stores. These are the songs that are playing on our radio stations. Can you believe they're still allowing that? I'm glad they are. And although many of us know about the birth of Christ, and we've heard of the death of Christ, and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, I'm not sure we all understand some, some of the events leading up to his birth. So I thought that today on Christmas Eve, we would take a look at just a few of the events leading up to the birth of Christ. We'll look at three Old Testament scriptures that speak of or predict something about the birth of Christ. They'll give us the location of his birth, and they'll give us the exact timing of his birth. We will see the scriptures predict exactly when the Messiah would be born, and we will see the scriptures predict exactly where he would be born. I personally love these types of scriptures because when I was searching, when I was trying to figure out, is the Bible true? Does it really mean, is it, is it really God's word? It was these types of prophecies, these types of predictions that were written some thousand plus years before they occurred, before they came to pass, when I was able to see, yes, God's word was true. It was predicted. And then we have the ability to look back on history and say, yes, it happened. That's what really encouraged me. And I hope it encourages you. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 49 this morning. The nation Israel came from Abraham. God had made Abraham a promise. The Lord told him that a great nation would come from his children. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was also obedient to God. Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And here in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob calls all 12 of his sons together. These 12 sons would later become as what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's getting older. 
He's getting up in years. He wants to bless his children. He wants to kind of give them a blessing and, and share some things about their future, what's coming, what they can expect, what's going to happen. Not that they'll see it because it's going to be fulfilled in generations beyond them. Genesis chapter 49 verse 1 says this, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. And just by reading this verse, we know Jacob is going to tell each of his sons what will become of, the, of their family, of their lineage, what, what's going to happen to our tribe, what's, what, what's going to take place in the last days. Well, this morning we're going to focus on Jacob's son, Judah. And I want to read the whole thing for context. Look with me down to verse 8. This is what Jacob has to say to his son, Judah. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? You see, these first two verses predict a fierce, lion-like dominance of Judah over his enemies, but also over his brothers who would praise him. History tells us that's exactly what happened. The, the history of the Israel tells us that's what took place. This leadership position that Judah has among his brothers meant that all the eventual kings of Israel would come from Judah and that ultimately the Messiah would come from the line of Judah. Jesus himself is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5 tells us that. And although Judah made his share of mistakes, his tribe, the tribe of Judah, is what remained of Israel for many years. When all the other tribes were captive and in captivity. Judah stood holding Jerusalem longer than anybody else. But our question this morning is, when's the Messiah going to come? When would he be born? Jacob's going to tell Judah about the coming Messiah. Jacob in, these ne in this next verse, in verse 10, is going to prophesy to Judah about the Messiah coming from his line. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, if you read that for the first time, you go, I don't really see it there. I don't see the word Messiah. I don't see Israel. I don't really see a whole lot there. But listen very carefully. I want you to understand something. There's two important words we need to know. We need to define them for you. Scepter and Shiloh. Scepter and Shiloh, the word scepter, the, the word scepter, it, a scepter is a symbol of kingship. Have you ever seen a picture of a king ruling? What does he have in his hand? It's usually a scepter. It's, it's, the, it's the picture that shows I am the king, I am the ruler. I have the ability to sentence you to death if I so choose. You have to obey me. That's what the scepter is. It's a symbol of kingship. It refers to their tribal identity and the right to apply and enforce Mosaic laws and to adjudicate capital offenses or even govern themselves. The term Shiloh, it's understood to mean the Messiah. Everybody understood. Universally, the rabbis understood the word Shiloh meant to be Messiah. It's not a Christian thing that we've adopted to us. It's something that the Jewish people understood. It was agreed upon by everybody. So let me reinstate this promise in a different way, using our modern language to make it easier. When Judah is no longer able to govern themselves, the Messiah will be on the scene. When Judah is no longer able to govern themselves, the Messiah will be on the scene. The scene. Remember, this is being prophesied by Jacob to Judah somewhere around 1859 BC. So, 1859 years before Christ, 
who we know as the Messiah, comes on the scene, this is prophesied. So if this is true and correct, we should be able to look back at the life of Christ and say, hey, according to what you just told me, Israel or Judah should no longer be able to govern themselves. It's important to also note, if you know your Jewish or your biblical history, that even during their 70-year Babylonian captivity of Judah, even during that time in about 600 BC, the tribes retained their tribal identity. They still had a governing authority over themselves. They covered their own logistics and their judges. They still had a position where they could govern themselves underneath of the Babylonian authority. Now, if we were to fast forward about 1,800 years to around 6 AD, up to the point, up to this point, Judah had remained in control and governing themselves. But I want to give you a glimpse of what's happening in world history at that time. What's happening over in the Middle East? After the death of Herod the Great, which was about 4 AD, he was the one that killed the babies after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Right after his death, his son Herod Archelaus was placed to rule over Judah. They didn't like him very much. He didn't last very long. Within a few short years, he was replaced by a Roman procurator named Caponius. And under Caponius, under his rule, the legal power of the Sanhedrin... Now, who was the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was the Jewish governing body. That was the group of people who governed them. Underneath of his rule, the legal power of the Sanhedrin was immediately restricted and the adjudication of capital cases was lost. They were no longer able to govern themselves. When the members of the Sanhedrin realized this, and this all took place, that they were, and they realized they're being deprived of their right over life and death, History tells us they covered their heads with ashes, their bodies with sackcloth, mourning, and they wailed in the streets of Jerusalem. And here's what they said. Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. You see, Jacob told Judah when the scepter departs, the Messiah will be on the scene. Fast forward 1800 and you know, 50, 60 years, they're in Jerusalem. The rabbis, the Jewish leaders are now saying, woe unto us, we've lost our scepter, and we don't have a Messiah. Where is he? He's gone, he's missing, we don't have one. We don't know where he is. They actually came to the conclusion that the Torah, the word of God, had failed. And that's why they were mourning. God's word had failed. Yes, the scepter had departed, had been removed from Judah, but the Messiah was already on the scene. Instead of thinking of the scriptures had failed, they should have opened their eyes and looked around and said, who, where, what else do the scriptures say about this coming Messiah? What are we missing? You see, while the Jewish leaders wept and wailed in the streets of Jerusalem, a young boy, a son of a carpenter, was growing up in Nazareth. Jesus was already born. He had been born in Bethlehem, fled to Egypt, come back to Nazareth, and he was growing up, walking in their their presence during the feast times. 1,800 years before Jesus, our Messiah, was born, Jacob told his son Judah that when the scepter departs Judah, the Messiah's on the scene. They missed it. They missed it. They should have known Messiah was on the scene by this very one verse. How is it possible that this prediction made over 1,800 years ago 1,800 years at that time, comes true. And the one who fulfilled it could have no part in it. Think about it. Could you decide where you're born? Did you get to choose when you were, when you were going to be born? 
Did you get to choose what time frame you were going to be born in? How is it the one, the Jesus Christ, the Messiah, fulfilled it exactly the way it was supposed to be fulfilled if he wasn't God? You see, he was. It had to happen at a certain time. It had to be fulfilled. And he fulfilled it exactly the way it was supposed to be fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, I, most of us can't quote very much from 1,800 years ago. That's a pretty big impact when the Bible says that's going to happen. And then history says it happened just like the Bible says. And we know historically that this, these books were not written at the same time. I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. I want to show you something else. Daniel chapter 9 is a wonderful chapter. I, we're not going to look at the whole thing. Uh, we certainly don't have time. Daniel was a, an Israelite, a Jew, who was living under Babylonian captivity um, after Jerusalem had been conquered. Uh, he was seeking God. He was praying about the future of Israel. And in Daniel chapter 9, he's going to get a visit from the angel Gabriel. I'm going to pick up in verse 20. Follow along with me. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me, and he talked with me, and he said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. I'm in chapter 9, verse 23 of Daniel. Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly bestowed. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Here's Daniel, under Babylonian captivity, praying for himself, making intercession, praying for the people of Israel, and all of a sudden he gets a vision, or gets a visit by the angel Gabriel. Any of you guys met Gabriel? I'd be pretty impressive. But, but to Daniel, it's kind of like, well, yeah, he's coming again. You know, this is a routine for him. Oh, I wish we could have that kind of prayer life. I would have written all about the angel. This is what he looked like. This is, I mean, I had all kinds of stuff. That's, Daniel goes right to what's important. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Why? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy one. Seventy weeks are determined. Seventy weeks are determined. Seventy weeks, it's a specific period of time. It's seventy weeks. And the word weeks, it simply refers to a unit of seven. How many days in a week? Seven. Seventy weeks. Almost every Bible scholar agrees this refers to 70 sets of seven, whether it be 70 sets of seven days or 70 sets of seven of years. Whatever it is, it's a set of seven. Remember that. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. But who is this time frame for? Who's he writing for? Seventy weeks are determined for who? For your holy people 
and for your holy and your holy city. For who, who's he talking to? He's talking to Israel there. He's talking to the nation Israel. These 70 weeks are for you, Israel. They're for you. At the end of the 70 weeks, notice it's the end of the 70 weeks. We're going to go to 69 weeks this morning. You're not going to get to the 70 weeks. You have to read ahead if you want that. At the end of 70 weeks, what's going to happen? An end of sins? Finish the transgression? Reconciliation for iniquity? Everlasting righteousness? Seal up vision and prophecy? And anoint the most holy? Oh, we look for that, don't we? We long for that. Now look at verse 25 in Daniel. We're going to see when this time period of 70 weeks begins. Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 says, Know, therefore, and understand. In other words, I want you to know something. I want you to understand something. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Not the temple, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. The angel Gabriel revealed the starting point of the 70 weeks. He said this, he said, when the command to rebuild Jerusalem is given, the Messiah is going to come on the scene after seven weeks and 62 weeks. Did you catch that? There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right, math majors. Seven plus 62 is 69. I know it's early. I'll help you out. 69 weeks, okay? So according to what Daniel's saying here, the Messiah is going to come on the scene in 69 weeks. Now we have to ask ourselves, what's a week? What's he talking about? Is he talking about weeks? If, we, if he's talking about weeks like we know weeks, then you're looking at about a year and a half from the time the, temp, the command's given. But that's not what he's talking about. Yes, there are periods of seven, but I want you to see it in seven periods of years. See, see it in periods of years. So 69 units of seven. 69 times seven. So 69 units of seven years equals the total number of years. 69 times seven. Anybody got it? 483, exactly. 400, somebody, he was here for the first service. He cheated. 483 years. Now this is pretty specific, don't you think? According to what Daniel's saying, if we read this right, Jesus Christ should come on the scene, the Messiah should be on the scene in 483 years from the time the command is given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, right? It seems pretty clear. Well, just to make it even a little, let's do a little more math. How many days is 483 years? And you go, well, I don't know. It's just way too, it's Christmas, Rob. Come on, let's talk presents and candy and, no. 483 years is 173,880 days. Okay, now some of you guys are out there with your phones going 483 times 365. No, no, you got to multiply times 360. The Jewish calendar has 360 days, not 365. It's a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So multiply 483 times 360, you'll get 173,880 days. If I did my math right which I think I did. Okay, so here, here's, where we're, here's where we're looking at this morning. From the time the command is given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, 173,880 days later, the Messiah should be on the scene. So the question becomes, well, when was the command given to rebuild Jerusalem? In Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, I'm not going to read it all to you, I'm just going to summarize it. Artaxerxes made a decree 
giving Nehemiah permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the city walls. History tells us that on March 14th, 445 BC, Artaxerxes made the decree to allow Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. So if you can do the math, I'll do it for you. You count forward 173,880 days on the Jewish calendar, and you will come to Sunday, April 6th, 32 AD. Sunday, April 6th, 32 AD. You say, well, I, he was already born by then. He, was, he was, had to be at least 30-something years old. Listen, Sunday, April 6th, 32 AD was the day that Jesus would have rode into Jerusalem on a donkey presenting himself as king of Israel, king to the Jews. On Palm Sunday, April 6th, 32 AD. A few days later, the very people that were, were, were praising him and singing Hosanna would then cry, crucify him. And you go, Rob, well, how do you know all that stuff? Well, I read a book, a book written by Sir Robert Anderson named the, called The Coming Prince. He's the one that wrote it. He's the one that read it. It has never been disproven to this day. It is still thought to be true, although there are some people that disagree with it. But think about that. Think about the implication. The exact time that the temple was told to rebuild, the exact number of days, and here's Christ riding into Jerusalem on a donkey saying, here I am, presenting himself to the Jews, receiving the worship. And the, and the Pharisees said, make them stop. And he said, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. There he is, riding into Jerusalem. He's their Messiah. He's there. He's on the scene, right according to when the scripture said they would be. Right, said he would be. Jacob told Judah when the Messiah came on the scene, they would not be able to govern themselves. The scepter had departed. When Jesus was living, the Romans were governing the Jews. Who had to sentence Jesus to death? Pilate. Why did Pilate have to do it? Because they were underneath the Roman rules. They had lost the ability to govern themselves and sentence someone to death. That's why they had to appeal to Pilate to sentence Christ to death. Fulfilling the exact prophecy that Jacob spoke to his son Judah over 1,800 years beforehand. Incredible. In this passage in Daniel, Daniel told us the time of the Messiah would be 483 years. The exact number of days and at that time Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and presents himself as king April 6 32 AD these two are amazing aren't they you look at these and go how could anybody not believe it's true because we don't really know them. we've never studied them. turn with me one more place Micah chapter 5 verse 2 it's page 817 in my Bible I don't know what it'll be in yours Micah, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Micah, M-I-C-A-H. After Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, then Micah. Micah 5-2. Micah was a prophet to Judah, He's prophesying about 700 years before Jesus was born. And I want you to see what he says there in verse 2. He's going to tell us exactly where the Messiah will be born. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of in Israel, whose going forths are from old, from of old, from everlasting. 
He just told us where the Messiah would be born. Where? In Bethlehem. But it also tells us of his future rule, and it also mentions his preexistence. The word Bethlehem means house of bread, and Jesus is known as the bread of life. John 6 tells us that. How many people can control where they're born? Nobody. How many people can control the time frame that they're born in? Nobody. You can't even pick the day that you're born. Oh, we have doctors that can make it happen at certain times. But back then, nobody had control over anything. And you really don't have that much control today. It's something, how could, how could one man possibly fulfill just three of these prophecies? How could he choose where he was born? How could he say, how could, how could it be told 1,800 years what's going to happen in world history at the time it's happening? How is it possible that the exact day of him riding into Jerusalem could be laid out before us so that we could look back and go, yep, that's it, it's fulfilled. You see, we have the benefit of history looking backwards. How is that humanly possible? It's not. How could anyone do that? They couldn't. Unless, of course, they're God. Unless, of course, they controlled those things. Unless, of course, they made those promises. Listen, there are over 200 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament. And he fulfilled every single one of them. They're all there. There's still some that we're waiting on to be fulfilled. There's still future prophecies we're waiting on to be fulfilled. But he, just looking at these three, the odds of being able to do that are astronomical. We can't go back 1,800 years and, and, and quote what's going to happen in the future. We can't even control what's going to happen tomorrow. You can't even control what's going to happen this afternoon. Yet it's all laid out for us. It's all there. I want you to turn one final place to me, Luke chapter 2. You guys are getting a Bible workout this morning, aren't you? If you've never studied Daniel chapter 9, I would highly suggest it. It's a great area of Scripture. Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read from starting in verse 2 down to verse 20. Um, just follow along with me as I do. It's just the traditional Christmas story. And I, as I'm reading it, I want you to consider all that's taken place throughout history to lead up to this. From the promise, from, 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 from you know, the scepter's going to depart from Judah, Judah when Shiloh comes. From all the things that are happening, all the point, all of history is yearning and crying out for the Messiah to come. And I want you to listen to all this is going as it all unfolds right before us here in verse 2 through 20. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. It's amazing how the Lord works to move his people around where he needs them. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. 
the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. So why all this hype around the birth of a baby? So why all this anticipated? It's been predicted. Why all this excitement? Why the angelic celebration in the sky? Because it wasn't an ordinary baby that was born. When we gather and celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the birth of the Messiah. The one who came to reconcile mankind to God. We're the one who says, I will forgive you for, my, for your sins if you will accept me and believe on me. That's what we do. This is what we're celebrating. This has been God's plan since the beginning of time. Think about that. No man could orchestrate something like this. In just those few prophetic passages that we looked at this morning, nobody could ever orchestrate something over a 2,000 year period of time. It just, it just couldn't happen like that. You see, the birth of Christ meant something special. It meant that mankind can be forgiven of our sins. And this is the time of year that we can proclaim it. This is the time of year we remember it. This is the time of year we hear it in our songs. We put manger scenes around our trees in our homes. We put angels. Why do you, why do you put the angel on the tree? Proclaiming the, the salvation. Proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. You see, we have this opportunity that lies before us. You see, the salvation that we celebrate, the birth of the Christ, the Messiah that we celebrate, begins as he stepped out of heaven and came to earth as a man. And it would ultimately culminate upon his death and his resurrection. But then someday we'll see him face to face. Listen to these words of this song. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power. How many people feel like they're under Satan's power sometimes? How many people are carrying the guilt and the shame of your poor mistakes and your judgments, the bad decisions you've made? How many people are carrying that with you? To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. You see, that's what the salvation brings us. That's what the Messiah brings us, comfort and joy. It brings us freedom from our sins, freedom from our mistakes. You see, if I was to go around the room and say, all right, everybody tell us your mistakes. 
we'd have to be sitting here through Christmas tomorrow. If I said, all right, let's tell us your sins, you'd go, no, no, I don't want you to know my sins. I want to just forget them. That's great that you can put them in the past, but you know what? They need to be dealt with. That only happens through the blood of Christ at the cross. I want to read one more song to you. Listen, this is from Francesca Battistelli's song called Messiah. Long-awaited, precious promise, son of God and son of man. Heaven's glory in a manger has come to us in Bethlehem. Messiah, Messiah, a baby born to save us all. Messiah, Messiah, on our knees we fall. All we longed for, all we needed, shining in this child's eyes, hope forever, death defeated because of this one holy night. Messiah, Messiah, a baby born to save us all. Messiah, Messiah, on our knees we fall. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Long-awaited, precious promise, coming back again. Messiah, Messiah, a baby born to save us all. Messiah, Messiah, on our knees we fall. That's why we're here this morning, is to worship the Messiah. It's to recognize who he is and what he's accomplished. We're all going to stand together in just a moment, and we're going to sing one last song. But before we do, I want to ask anybody, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never said, he's my Messiah, he's my Savior, maybe you might know that he's somebody else's Savior. Maybe you've even prayed a prayer before, but you've never come to the conclusion that you've never said, Lord, I will now follow you for the rest of my life. During this last song, I'm going to be standing right over here in the corner, and I want you to come up and see me. And I want to pray with you so you can accept Christ. If your life this morning is falling apart, if it's a mess, if you go, I, I just, I, I just, you, you, you said those words, comfort and joy, I need those in my life, I want you to come pray with me. And if there gets to be too many people, then someone else will step up and you can pray with them. But as we stand to sing this last song, if you're hurting this morning during Christmas, if you need to accept Christ as your Savior, I'm going to be right over here. And if, and if there are more people come than I can pray with, then someone else come on up and help pray with me, okay? But if that's what needs to happen, that's what will happen. But if you're hurting, I'll be over here and I would love to pray with you. And if you've never accepted Christ, I would encourage you. This has been the plan of God since the beginning of time. And today might be your day where you say, this is the day that I'm going to follow Christ forever. This is the day I'm going to draw my line in the sand. So if that's you, I'll be over here. The rest of us are going to sing this last song. So let's all stand. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for Christmas and your sacrifice. And Lord, I just pray that our hearts are connected with yours. I pray that we don't get distracted by the things of the world, all the stuff that goes on. I pray, Lord, you would move and work in our hearts, that we would receive your joy and your forgiveness. For that's why you came to bring good tidings of great joy, to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Lord, may we not be an enemy of you. May we be followers. In Jesus' name, amen.